as many movies as I've gone to see this year, there's always been this aura with within whatever crowd was there, or lack of a crowd for that matter, that even though I realized I was watching a movie in a theater, there still was kind of an energy that hadn't returned yet. And I felt like that returned when I saw this movie. This is the Box Office Podcast. I am Daniel Luria, the editorial director of Box Office Pro, the only publication in North America exclusively dedicated to covering theatrical exhibition. Joined today by our co-hosts, Rebecca Pauly, deputy editor of Box Office Pro, and Sean Robbins, chief analyst at Box Office Pro. In our episode today, we will go over the historic opening weekend for Spider-Man No Way Home and take a look at what we can expect from the Christmas box office and new releases like Universal's Sync 2 and Warner Brothers' The Matrix Resurrections. Later on in the episode, we've got Greg Lemley, president of Lemley Theaters, joining us for an interview with Rebecca Pauly. But before we get started, let's hear from this week's sponsor, Spotlight Cinema Networks. This episode of the Box Office Podcast is brought to you by Spotlight Cinema Networks, the only cinema advertising company dedicated to serving the needs of art house, luxury, and dine-in exhibitors for cinema advertising, pre-show entertainment, event cinema, and digital display distribution. Spotlight offers unique revenue-generating advertising programs tailored to an upscale and influential cinema audience. In collaboration with Box Office Pro, Spotlight Cinema Networks is proud to present Indie Focus, a monthly interview series profiling industry thought leaders, iconic art houses, and executives from the country's leading luxury cinema circuits. To find out more about Spotlight Cinema Networks, visit SpotlightCinemaNetworks.com. Thank you, Rebecca. And it was a great milestone weekend here for the global box office. Sony's Spider-Man No Way Home opening to $260 million domestically, the second highest opening weekend of all time in North America, and running up a $600 million opening weekend without China. Great figures here globally, a lot to unpack. Let's start here with Sean. Sean, before we get into the numbers, you saw this opening night with a real audience in a big movie theater. What was your experience watching this? You know, it was something that I haven't seen it since before the pandemic. As many movies as I've gone to see this year, there's always been this this aura within whatever crowd was there, or lack of a crowd for that matter, that even though I realized I was watching a movie in a theater and there were more people showing up, especially over time, there still was kind of an energy that hadn't returned yet. And I felt like that returned when I saw this movie Thursday night with a bunch of Marvel fans, diehards and casuals and families and just people from all backgrounds. I just looked around the crowd and realized this is this is what movie going looked like two years ago and before. And it's back. And that was my biggest takeaway uh, on top of just loving the movie itself. Even at the press screening, and they don't tend to be incredibly raucous, I, I don't think I've seen this much enthusiasm at one since Star Wars The Force Awakens, probably. It was uh, really heartening to see. I definitely felt like there was some kind of a, there was a communal psychological release going on. (laughs) (laughs) That's a great point, Rebecca. Uh, I think one of the big factors that helped this movie hit these numbers, when we compare it to other important milestones in the reopening, we didn't see this support from the press when it came to movie going with Tenet, 
or with Wonder Woman 1984. I think by this point, cinemas have been open long enough. People, or at least the people going to the movies, have gone enough times to feel comfortable to advocate for the experience. Sean, can you bring these domestic numbers into context? Yeah, I think this movie really built on what we started to see with Venom, especially in Fast 9 before that and other films, the 18 to 34 demographic. That's who have been showing up throughout this year. In, in waves, they've been coming back more often and more often, and we really saw that kind of explode in October with four straight solid box office hits. And everything led up to this. Now, it's it's hard to say, you know, did Spider-Man still leave money on the table because of maybe some older audiences who still aren't going back to theaters? Sure. But it seems to be a very, very small percentage of that movie-going audience. Whereas six months ago, we were talking about polls and surveys and data in general showing that probably close to 25% or more of the pre-pandemic movie-going audience wasn't coming back yet. We're still diving into this data for Spider-Man. There's going to be a lot to unpack going into the new year, but I think it's safe to say that that number is significantly higher now. Now that begs the question, do they keep coming back into the new year, or is this still going to be an event movie-based phenomenon, especially as we go through the winter with variant concerns? That's a lot we'll be talking about over the next few weeks and months. It is so important to measure the success of this title, not only on the opening weekend, but on the ripple effect it has for other films on the release schedule in the coming weeks. Of course, we've got a big question mark coming up this weekend with a number of titles hitting the market, with a number of specialty titles expanding to more screens. This is going to be, I think, a crucial frame in Christmas to see how much momentum we have heading into what looks to be another difficult winter season with an additional round of COVID variants and cases being in the picture. Absolutely. And I think we, we would look at this movie historically and say a rising tide lifts all boats. And I think that's still going to be true in some aspects. We'll talk a little bit about the movies coming out over Christmas here in a little bit. Uh, and a couple of them look like they'll do pretty well. This also speaks to the fact that as, as often as we've seen these ebbs and flows of the box office, and as much as we talk about concern about the pandemic, it also comes down to content. And when the content's there, people are clearly going to show up. Seeing Spider-Man is, my goodness, this is just a huge crowd-pleasing movie. And I mean, not to, not to speak unfavorably on other movies that have come out to this point, but it really did speak to, I think, Sony's faith in the title and faith that it would that it would bring in those audience members because it just really is that sort of movie. It was really, I had a really good time with it. That's a great point to bring up. And we also haven't really talked about the fact that this is probably the first big major event movie to come out during the pandemic that wasn't something that had been delayed 20 times. This was essentially announced and confirmed during the pandemic. So I don't know if it really helped or hurt any other movie, but there was an aura around this movie that it was brand new and we hadn't been talking about it for three or four years and waiting and waiting for it to come out and wondering if it ever would. This was something brand new in the minds of everyone. So it's the reverse polar opposite then of The King's Man, which is an upcoming <laughs> release that I feel like we've been uh, waiting to see for decades at this point. Right, exactly. And guys, I think what this title also represents is a reflection of Sony's commitment to theatrical distribution and exhibition. Sony's Tom Rothman, the head of their motion pictures group, going up at CinemaCon on stage during the Sony presentation 
and very, uh, let's call it vociferously and passionately uh, solidifying the studio support for theatrical. Now, of course, Sony has sold select titles to streamers, titles like The Mitchells versus The Machines, titles like Cinderella. They've gone to streaming, but the titles that Sony releases under its own banner, they hit movie theaters exclusively. And we've seen that with the success of Venom, Let There Be Carnage, and we especially saw that with a $600 million global opening weekend for Spider-Man No Way Home, $340 million coming from 60 overseas markets. I'm going to rattle off the top performers here real quick. The United Kingdom with a $42.3 million debut. Mexico with $33.3 million. South Korea, $23.6 million. France with $19.2 million. You might have noticed I didn't mention China where the film still doesn't have a release date. So this $600 million global opener really, really is a testament to the great interest this title had to hit these milestones without the help of a market like China. Yeah, you know, when, when we can talk about the fact that this movie is the third biggest global opening of all time, only behind Infinity War and Endgame. So I think the fact that we can talk about this being the third biggest global opening of all time is something... It's not entirely shocking, but it's made all the more stunning because it's occurring during the pandemic. If this movie opened under normal circumstances, it might be almost expected that it would rival the opening of something like Avengers Infinity War. For it to get that close and considering all these market restrictions, which vary on a country country by basis, it's it's just incredible. And those restrictions that you mentioned, Sean, that are occurring on a territory-by-territory basis, we saw a number of them pop up during opening weekend, in some cases in the middle of opening weekend. Canada, here part of the domestic North American market, actually instituting a 50% capacity restriction with a ban on concession sales in the entire province of Ontario. So halfway through this movie's opening weekend, circuits like Cineplex and Landmark in Canada had to scramble to reaccommodate their pre-sales audience in new showtimes, in new auditoriums, really a huge effort from our colleagues in Canada to make sure that these audiences excited to go to the movies were able to find a showtime, even if it was at a different time or a different date or a different auditorium that they had originally purchased. We're seeing similar restrictions happening in other countries around the world. Unfortunately, in Denmark and the Netherlands, two of the European markets that had best recovered in terms of admissions during the pandemic have now closed cinemas entirely, with cinemas in the Netherlands opening on January 14th and Denmark scheduled to reopen on January 17th. Meanwhile, we're seeing curfews in countries like Ireland subject to an 8 p.m. cutoff for all showtimes in the country until the end of January 2022. And in South Korea, we saw a 10 p.m. curfew for cinemas. These restrictions dented the performance of this film internationally, but by no means derailed it. Of course, there are a lot of variables up in the air. We don't know how this is going to evolve. By the time you listen to this episode, for our listeners at home, there very well might be additional restrictions in other countries. And uh, Daniel, yeah, speaking of other countries, but news that is not directly related to COVID, though certainly it's a factor, uh, we do have an update on the legal situation between 
Cineworld and Cineplex. Now, if you will recall, in December of 2019, just mere months before COVID shut the global exhibition industry down, Cineworld uh, signed an agreement to acquire Cineplex, the largest exhibitor in Canada. Had this deal gone through, Cineworld would have been by far the world's largest global exhibitor. That said, COVID happened. Obviously, a lot of things changed in the world. And in June of 2020, Cineworld dropped the acquisition, citing, quote, certain breaches on behalf of Cineplex. Cineplex, in turn, sued. And as of last week, we do have a judgment in that case, with the Ontario Superior Court of Justice ordering that Cineworld pay Cineplex Canadian $1.24 billion in damages, which comes out to right around $950 million American, um, if we're going by the exchange rate here. Uh, this, this story is by no means over. Cineworld has said that they do plan to appeal. So um, it's, it's just another, another crazy step in this story where we have two of uh, North America's and indeed the world's largest and, and most um, impactful chains really having this legal dispute that's going to keep chugging on for a little bit longer. And this might end up being the biggest headline of next year. What happens with the Cineplex and Cineworld situation and what consequences it has in terms of global M&A and global screen count for these circuits? Uh, Rebecca, thank you so much for that update. You can read more about the developments in this matter on our website, boxofficepro.com, where you'll also find a story this week on a new law that was passed in New York City requiring cinemas in New York to have open caption showtimes in at least 25% of their screenings for any title that runs in cinemas. This is still developing. There is no final decision other than the bill has initially passed. Uh, there's going to be a period of review to see what insights we can glean from that data on this decision. It's something that NATO of New York has already issued a statement on the matter, stating that this is something that has to be data-driven by the circuits themselves as opposed to introduced by government regulations with fines during a time when cinemas are already facing heavy operating restrictions around the world. That's another story that you will be getting updates on on our website throughout the coming weeks and months. So a lot of big question marks as we head into 2022. Let's take a step back and look at what's immediately ahead of us here at the Christmas box office. We've got two major studio titles one from Universal, Sync 2, another one from Warner Brothers, The Matrix Resurrections. And we have to ask, what impact is the second weekend of Spider-Man No Way Home going to have at the domestic box office? Sean, what are your initial expectations here as we head into the Christmas weekend? Well, I think the reception so far indicates this. I mean, this thing's just going to play through the holidays. The calendar always gets very wonky around this time, though, especially with projecting and forecasting, because how Christmas lands, depending on which day, can significantly skew how business is going to go. Ultimately, the the whole two to three week corridor ends up being strong. But on a day to day level, and especially on weekends, which we always tend to focus on, things can vary quite a bit. For example, the all-time second weekend record belongs to Star Wars The Force Awakens still, when it made $149 million back in 2015. But it had Christmas land on that weekend, and it did not have Christmas Eve, which usually sees deflated movie attendance. 
Spider-Man will have Christmas Eve land on Friday. So it's pretty unlikely that it can get up to that 149 or even the 147.4 million of end game, uh, which is the second biggest second weekend of all time. But it should still probably, I would think, pass Avengers Infinity War, which was 114.8 million. Could be close. Uh, we're going to break things down. We'll have our weekend forecast out at the middle of this week at some point. But it, either way, it's going to be a big second weekend. And I think the word of mouth is really going to fuel it. So these are pre-pandemic figures that we're seeing from Spider-Man No Way Home. Should we have the same expectations for a children's title like Sing 2, considering the COVID situation in the market, and for a day-and-date movie like The Matrix Resurrections, or do these operate under a completely different set of expectations considering where we are with these titles? Right. I, I think we still have to be cautious with a movie like Scene 2, although uh, it looks very encouraging. It's, it's sold very well ahead of time. They held sneak previews back at the end of November that sold out in a lot of places. I think this is arguably the most prolific animated movie to release so far during the pandemic, considerably more than Encanto, simply because it's a franchise movie. And people already loved the first scene, so it's a brand unto itself. Uh, and opening over Christmas is a smart play, especially now that more kids have been vaccinated. And in some cases, that two-week waiting period has, has long passed. So I think parents are clearly showing that they're, they're going to be more willing to go out to cinemas for this one, especially after seeing the success of Spider-Man. And how about for a movie like The Matrix, Resurrections, Sean, this is a franchise that hasn't been around for a couple of decades. There's a lot of positive nostalgia on this title. The last two sequels, eh, I don't know. I mean, <laughs> I, I guess, you know, the less said about them, the better. Day and date on HBO Max. I mean, there's a lot to watch at the movies on Christmas, but this one's available at home. What do you expect on a title like this one? I think. The fan component is strong, but I'm very curious to see how it plays after that initial rush. So my initial thought process here is this is probably the most like a movie like Dune. Also Warner Brothers, also Day and Date, also a very heavily adult male fan base. Where I see this differing a little bit is that Dune kind of broke away from most of the other Warner Brothers titles this year and had pretty solid legs despite being available to watch at home because it was billed as a must-see in-theater experience. The Matrix falls into that category, I think, in some ways for a lot of fans, but the goodwill from the sequels almost 20 years ago will play a factor on top of being available to watch at home and on top of the fact that Spider-Man is the talk of the world right now. Guys, thank you so much. Let's now transition over to our feature segment where, Rebecca, as I understand it, you had a pretty in-depth interview with Greg Lemley, the president of Lemley Theaters over in Southern California. Yes, Daniel, it was great to speak with Greg Lemley for the December installment of our Indie Focus series. Uh, Lemley Cinemas is a small California-based chain in the Los Angeles area, uh, has eight theaters, and has been around since 1938. So um, obviously, as a big history buff, I was really thrilled to hear about this historic chain and how it has adapted to these last few years and, and how it's doing looking forward. Um, as a fan of, um, of cult cinema, I was extremely happy for a different reason, which is that Lemley Cinema was actually the cinemas that first saw the premiere of Tommy Wiseau's uh, The Room. It, it screened The Room, and if it had not had that theatrical opening night experience, uh, that film would not be the glorious, weird, what-the-heck's-going-on uh, pulp midnight phenomenon that it is. So, um, yeah, very excited to speak to him. 
Greg, thank you so much uh, for speaking with me today. Uh, the name Lemley obviously has huge uh, historical significance for the entire world of movies. Uh, can you explain a bit how this cinema circuit came about? Well, the circuit was started by my grandfather and his brother when they took over the operation of uh, two neighborhood movie theaters in Highland Park. Mm -hmm. uh, my grandfather's brother had previously been running a theater in Lowell, Indiana, the Ritz Theater. They decided to go into business together, but, uh, you know, and chose Los Angeles. They had gotten their start in the movie business working for their father's first cousin, Carl Lemley, who was the founder of Universal Studios and, uh, you know, one of the founding, you know, most important figures in the history yeah. of motion pictures. <laughs> Pretty much. One of the, the titans of the industry all the way back. So you, uh, you have it in the blood. So something that um, that caught my eye, you know, immediately kind of looking at the website, this Sneaks Club, where you kind of do one-off screenings of movies that, you know, just to kind of test them out, see the potential of them, advanced screenings for uh, for your loyal audience members. Can you talk a bit about how that, that program came about and a little bit more detail on the sorts of films that you show? Because um, it's a really intriguing concept to me. Well, look, we believe that uh, word of mouth still is a, a, you know, a powerful tool in terms of helping smaller films, quality films, find an audience. And we like to say that, you know, films that are good films, well-made and, and ones that are going to appeal to an audience have, you know, have that advantage, you know, even when other films have larger advertising budgets. Uh, so one of the things we like to say is, you know, look, we would like to sometimes be able to give a little more attention to a smaller film, start generating some buzz among people in a way that it can be more organic than just spending dollars. And, and it grew out of a frustration that, you know, there were several films that we thought were really great that, you know, but the competition is very fierce. And if you don't get your grosses in and don't, don't get that audience in in the first three days, you may not have an opportunity to develop word of mouth. And so many people are finding these films after the fact. So this was an idea of, of saying, let's jump ahead. Let's give a film a little extra visibility first with a, you know, a separate a recruitment email. Uh, which goes out to our full list, and then, you know, an opportunity to screen it and have people talk about it. I mean, especially with, with the specialty market, it's so crowded. I mean, you have things like, goodness, Searchlight and Focus and these major specialty distributors with major marketing budgets behind them. It's like, how can some of these smaller films compete? So obviously, that Searchlight and, and Focus and, you know, and, and Neon and A24 and Sony Classics all make very, you know, make and distribute mm -hmm. quality films. Um, there can be smaller films that are equally worthy of an audience's attention, but they don't have that. I mean, first, they don't have the dollars. And second, they may not have the marketing hook um, that comes from cast or a director or, or, or a genre. And, and they need that little extra visibility. So the Sneak Preview Club is a way to generate that visibility. Um, and again, also just a way to develop word of mouth. I mean, we're big believers that films should play the festival circuit so that they can start acquiring fans and people mm -hmm. that will support the release of that film because some of these films will only have one week in the marketplace. And we <laughs> wanna make sure that everybody that should see this film is aware that the film is playing um, and, and get out there and see it. And ideally, if they see it in the first three days, then maybe the film gets another week. And that's really how it works. We don't <laughs> determine which films hold over and get to play for second and third and fourth weeks in the marketplace. The audience mm -hmm. determines that. Typically, you know, you see a lot of theaters, obviously, will, will have a discount pricing for seniors, discount pricing on certain days. Uh, Lemley has a, a special reduced day for students, which that seems kind of in that same vein of 
I don't know, generating interest. Can, can you talk a bit about your discount program at the Lemley seems really robust. And I'm wondering how it came about and what role that plays and what value it brings to the circuit. So we're big believers in regular movie going and, and not event movie going. And we like to think that before the pandemic, the typical Lemley movie patron was seeing a movie a week, you know, whereas the average American sees a movie a month, if that. You have to recognize that you know, that people, there's a financial choice there. And if people are seeing lots of movies, movie going needs to be less expensive. Mm-hmm. So what we try and do is encourage, you know, volume programs so that movie going becomes less expensive if you're buying in bulk, ultimately, um, or mm-hmm. using a premiere card, which is preloaded and gives you discounts, you know, immediately. Or you are going to a less crowded showtime or a less crowded part of the week. So, yeah, if you're coming on Friday and Saturday night, to see the biggest film, you probably should expect to pay, <laughs> you know, full price. Yeah. But if you are coming to see a smaller film, if you're coming on a Monday or Tuesday matinee, that's where we want to give you the discounts because we have the added capacity at that time. And we know that if people are going to see lots of movies, it, it needs to be priced accordingly. I mean, look, there's a concern that younger people are not seeing movies, and it's especially a concern in the art house. Where's the next generation of art house moviegoers coming from? And, you know, to not pay attention to the financial realities that uh, that younger people have to face in terms of mm-hmm. uh, lower wages and higher rents and, and you know, costs going elsewhere is, is just pointless. For Lumley in particular, and, and really for every every art house uh, specialty theater out there, um, it, it's so important to get younger generations in, to get different demographics in. To that point, it seems like the, the programming at the Lemley seems really um, eclectic, which I love. Could you talk a little bit about your programming strategy and, and maybe, given that the Lemley chain has such a long history, how it's evolved over the years? Right. Well, uh, you know, I think, you know, the core problem or one of the main issues is if you're trying to get more diverse audiences to see traditional art house film, you know, that's a worthy goal. But, you know, you're also not meeting the audience where they where they want to be. And there are certain films that are going to appeal to a younger audience. There are certain films that are going to appeal to niche audiences that are not necessarily coming to see traditional art house films. But you have to offer them something that they want to see get them in the door, and then you can expose them to the concept of, of uh, art house films, foreign language films. But, you know, it, you've got to meet the audience halfway. Um, mm-hmm. and, and that comes about with price, and it comes about with programming. So if you don't program films that are going to appeal to a younger audience, you're not doing outreach. Yeah. And, you, and you, can try, you can try to reach them. And, there are, and, the, and the fact is, there are films for all kinds of audience. And, yes, maybe the traditional art house audience does not want to see a really great horror film, <laughs> indie mm-hmm. horror film, or they may not want to see a film from a country or a region or a language that is not something that is traditionally on their radar. But there is an audience that wants to see those films, mm-hmm. and you have to you have to put it in the theater and give them a shot to see it, uh, and then obviously tailor your marketing. You know, by the same token, trying you know trying necessarily to bring that traditional art house audience to something that they're not going to enjoy or something that is a little off their radar. That's as much of a fool's errand as well. But ultimately, it's about really making the films available, doing the best effort that you can to get the information about the release in front of the audience that is most likely to attend, you know, and then hoping that there's some crossover uh, once once you've achieved that immediate goal. But you also just you have to know where your audience is. You know, that's in terms of their mind space and it's also in terms of geography. Mm-hmm. Um, if we know that the 
Farsi-speaking community lives out in the, you know, San Fernando Valley around our Encino Theater playing a film from Iran in Pasadena is not helpful <laughs> for that audience. So you've got to understand who are the, you know, who are the audiences that support a theater? Who are the audiences that might support a location if, if given the opportunity to come see something there and, and just try and make it all fit together. But, but again, it really does start by having the films be available because if they're not available to begin with, um, and you're not giving a non-traditional audience an opportunity to see those films, you're just not going to get there. Yeah, there was, um, the, a state of the art house kind of webinar roundtable type uh, type situation, and, and one of the points that was brought up that I thought was really good is that there tends to be this perception of um, the art house cinema space sometimes as being very gatekeepery. Like these are the films that are good. This is what you're going to watch, and you can't do that. You have to listen to what your audience wants. You have to give them what they want rather than acting like uh, the, the gatekeeper of all things independent film. No, I mean, we look, we deliberately try to reject the gatekeeper concept. Mm -hmm. I have films that I like. I have a personal set of tastes. Uh, There are films that I'm not necessarily going to be the the primary audience for. But it's not about my taste. I think you have to be very careful about being seeing yourself as a curator or a gatekeeper. It's about, you know, understanding what is it that the audience wants to see or you or may want to see and, you know, and creating a, a place and an environment where everything has an opportunity. I mean, look, you know, one of the more, more transformative films that we, I mean, <laughs> transformative is probably the wrong word. I mean, you know, I'm the guy that played the room. And, and one could argue that it's done very well for art houses around the country because it brought in a non-traditional audience to see something outside of the mainstream, which is what we're really all about, um, is, is presenting alternatives to the mainstream. So, you know, that's clearly a situation where the audience perceives something in the film that if we don't give that an opportunity to be seen in this environment, you know, the whole thing doesn't happen. Yeah. It's a theatrical L aspect of the room. If that had not, it wouldn't be anything. Right. Now I'm not saying that I should, you know, I should have played the room instead of some really great French film, (laughs) but I should find room for the room. Room for the room. There you go. And, and, you know, and that's where expanding your day parts, expanding your programming concepts become important. Yes, you know, the traditional art house audience may not come out after 10 p.m. for a movie, but other audiences will. I will. And if you program regularly for that audience in that part of the day or in a a region where, you know, part of town where late shows are going to do well, where midnight shows will do well, not everything has to be Rocky Horror, you know. You Mm -hmm. do Rocky Horror on Friday night and do something else on Saturday night. And, you know, and there are just many, you know, instances of films. Obviously, The Room is the most, you know, successful example. But things that we've been able to do with midnight shows, with late shows, things that we can do on Saturday and Sunday mornings before we open for our regular programming, things that you can do on midweek evenings that, uh, you know, just create more vibrancy and more life. Theaters in uh, in L.A., like theaters in New York, um, were able to open a lot later than the rest of the country. You're really starting to see, you know, high profile titles uh, come out now closer to the end of the year award season. Yes, they typically do. Given that, how's uh, what's the recovery process been like for Lemley? Where uh, where are you in terms of you know co- comparable to where you were in 2019? Different theaters are doing better than than others. Some theaters are doing better than others, and in part that's about the you know the age of the audience that typically or that will support those locations. You know, art films uh, and films in general that are appealing to a younger audience are having an easier time. Mm-hmm you know, and achieving a higher percentage of box office. 
Um, the older audience is still very much on the on the fence. We were seeing some good momentum from April to May to June. Um, you know, July was off to a really good start, and the Delta surge, you know, just really kicked our ass. I think you know everybody knew that vaccines were not 100% effective, but the idea of breakthrough infections scared a lot of people, and lost in the messaging was the fact that, yes, you might be get a breakthrough infection, but you're not likely to be hospitalized or not likely to have a severe case was just not material. So uh, people did not want to get infected in any way, shape, or form. And anybody that felt that they were more susceptible, even if they were vaccinated, even if they're boosted at this point, there's, you know, they're on the sidelines. You know, I was really hoping that the Delta surge as it was dying down, which had been seen in other countries. So there was an assumption that you know, as we hit October and November, Delta would be less of a factor in, in, in the United States. But the new variant, the Omicron variant, has, you know, again, thrown people. So, you know, look, we have a long Oscar season this year. Um, the awards are not till March. So I'm, I'm hopeful even as some of these films start going out onto ancillary platforms, if we can get to a place where people can put the risk of, of COVID at an appropriate level, it, this is no more dangerous than driving to the theater. if we can really put that risk well a get that risk to a lower level and then be mentally you know start accepting that where it's at that the audience will you know start coming back Mm -hmm. uh you know otherwise we're just you know we are going to have to wait um and we're going to have to accept that right now we're still fighting an uphill battle what are the films that have done have done well for you over the past few months french dispatch Mm -hmm. Um, but that, you know, again, I mean, first it's a, you know, it's a name director and it's a, and a, a younger appealing audience. Mm-hmm. Uh, Belfast is a, is a terrific movie and it's done some business, but not, you know, what one would expect given the quality of the reviews and arguably the quality of the movie. You know, we're still wearing these really negative frame of reference. We still have a very negative frame of reference. We're looking at how empty the glass is, not how full it is. You know, and unfortunately, I, I can't look at films like Belfast, films like Spencer, even films like Titan to some extent. And, and and really see, God, this would have done so much better in a pre-pandemic environment. Why is this film struggling to find an audience? At some level, I need to should appreciate, well, this is how much of an audience it did find theatrically and what it's done. That's something. Um, because we're, you know, again, it's it's still a really difficult environment in which to, um, I think there's people that don't even, still don't know that their movie theaters are open. We are open now, but it's going to take time to reacquire an audience, to re, you know, reacquire with movie going. And you have to be careful. I mean, how much effort do we put into outreach during this environment versus, you know, do we need to save our ammo, you know, until the, the coast is clear, you know? And yeah, we're open right now and we're catering to an audience that is ready to come out. But that real effort to reacquire the audience that, you know, has some reasonable concern about coming out, maybe we just need to wait till this, you know, this whole thing passes. It's kind of like the, the riptide concept. The last thing you want to do is swim against the tide. Go with it. Go with it until it's done. (laughs) Let the tide take you where it's going to take you. You know, eventually you'll get out of that riptide and you can, you know, move to the side and then get back to to where you need to get back. You know, save your energy until it's you you can have some impact. Swimming against the stream is is not going to get you anywhere. The Box Office Podcast is produced in collaboration between Box Office Pro, The Box Office Company, and Record Edit Podcast. Please tune in next weekend for more on box office, the cinema industry. Thank you so much and have a great rest of your week. Mm -hmm.